Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, earlier this week, it was Veterans Day in the United States, and today I have the pleasure and honor of speaking to a Vietnam War veteran and also a Medal of Honor recipient. His name is Paul Buca, and today we're going to discuss Captain Buca's service in the Vietnam War. We'll discuss the events that led up to his Medal of Honor citation. We're going to talk about what it's like being a recipient of the Medal of Honor and the burden of responsibility that comes with that. We'll also be discussing what he learned from his service in Vietnam and what he hopes civilians understand about the war and what lessons we can take from it as we approach the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Vietnam War. It's a fascinating discussion with a very fascinating and he's a heroic man. So let's get on with the show. Paul Buca, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So you are a Vietnam War veteran and also a recipient of the Medal of Honor. But before we get there, let's talk about your life before you joined the military. Because I'm sure people are curious on maybe there was something in the life of a Medal of Honor recipient when they were young that you know, <laughs> helped them become a Medal of Honor recipient. What was your life like before military service? And uh, I was an Army brat. Okay. But um, And we traveled to Germany and Japan and all around the United States. Um, but I guess most of my time, besides trying to do well in school, because my mother and father were very strict when it came to that, I would say from a very early age, a competitive swimmer. And that allowed me to travel as well, because we went all over the United States swimming. And when I got to Japan, my father had originally, because of I had found quite a bit of success in swimming, had enrolled me in the Georgia Military Academy with several other swimmers because they were trying to assemble a prep school uh, championship team down there. And I was originally scheduled to go there, but I made the decision that anything could happen in swimming or in any sport when you bet your future on it. You do everything to make the Olympics, and God forbid you have a broken leg and you miss your Olympics. So I just told my dad that I understood it probably would mean that I would fall behind my contemporaries in the States, but I wanted to go to Japan with the family. And I went to Japan with a family, and I swam. They didn't have an indoor pool, except at the Fujia Hotel, which is about 100 miles away. There was only one in the country. The rest were hot baths. So I played basketball, football, and baseball. Summer, I swam. And in the winter, I tried to one day a week swim, and I would go, <laughs> I would go to a large hot bath I knew about, put my goggles on, and the Japanese people would separate and give me a path to swim back and forth for a half hour or so. 
So I had a very ordinary life in the sense of, of a military family. And um, I don't think that uh, the Medal of Honor really ha- finds any genesis in the life before. It is more something that comes about when realizations of the moment um, in ordinary people uh, convince them that they have to do something to change destiny as they understand it. And they don't do it the day before, they don't do it the day after, and rarely do they do it more than once. And therefore, I'm not sure that the life you lead up to that moment has much relevance to it, other than uh, being taught to be determined and having confidence, things like that. But I don't know that there's much that uh, that the family imparts to you or that education imparts to you. Okay. Um, was there an expectation that you would serve in the military, you know, follow your father's footsteps? No. I, in fact, I in fact had a... Uh, pledged my fraternity at the University of Indiana because that was one of the better swimming teams in America. And then I went to Yale University and picked my college, uh, which was the one that all the swimmers went to. And by chance, my father said, we'd like to go see West Point. And I said, where is it? He said, well, it's around here somewhere. And we were coming back from New Haven, heading back to uh, St. Louis. And uh, I was driving. He said, look, uh, it's got to be on the Hudson River. Let's just go up the Hudson River. And I said, well, West Point's got to be on the east bank pointing west. So we got in the car and drove up, only to find after we'd been driving about two hours up the Hudson that a man at a gas station in Poughkeepsie told us that, no, it was not on the east bank pointing west. It was on the west bank pointing east. <laughs> and so we went back down, found it. I uh, met Jack Ryan, who was the coach, spent the evening I went back and talked to my athletic director about what I'd seen and what I'd heard. And he told me, he says, if you go to West Point for one day and then quit, go to Indiana or Yale, you will be a better person for it the rest of your life. And I thought that was a pretty convincing thing to say because rarely does, does a young kid get offered a chance to do something that in the eyes of adults, especially adults he or she respects, uh, could be a life-changing experience. So I told West Point I would come, fully expecting I'd be gone by September and at Yale or Indiana. And I remember looking in the mirror, December 5th, we were getting ready to swim Yale, and I forgot to tell him I wasn't coming. And I called the coach, and I said, Coach, you know, my gosh, I didn't tell Coach Moriarty I'm not coming. I said, he knows you're not. Don't worry. <laughs> so... No, West Point was something that was totally by chance and a career in the military. My father would be the type of person to say, if you decide to do that, you're on your own. Just like when I decided to go to West Point, he said, you're doing that on your own. We'll see you on, when you graduate. And they only visited twice during the entire four years. Uh, and his point was that if parents push kids to do something that may, demands of them sacrifice, it's very easy for the children to turn around and blame the family if things don't go well. And my father had always been one that you, you pick, you choose to do something that's difficult, you're on your own. Good luck. We'll cheer for you. We'll you know, pray for you. We'll hope everything goes well. But don't look to us for an excuse for quitting. <laughs> you decided to go yourself. Don't quit. You've been taught not to quit. But we've always also taught you to pick the things that you choose to be non-quitter in. Um, and 
going to West Point was one of those that he said he wanted to make it absolutely clear. He thought it was nuts, <laughs> even though he was a colonel in the Army. He, he was a uh, son of the Depression. He said, you don't know what it would be like to go into Yale on a full scholarship to my generation. How you can turn it down, I don't know. And I said, well, maybe I'm not turning it down. I'll be there in September. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> I was there in December still at West Point. What, what was it about West Point that made you stay? There was a certain excitement. There was a buzz um, among the cadets. I went and ate dinner in the mess hall. And there, there was, at that time, 2,800 cadets. Now we got 4,400 cadets, but 2,800. And, and there was just something about all 28 eating together. And the athletes had their own section. Not that they could be slovenly or come you know, less well-dressed than the rest. No, everybody looked alike. The clothes were the same, everything. No one got any shortcuts on that. The athletic teams, for camaraderie purposes, ate together. And I just thought that was kind of, <clears throat> that was kind of a, a neat environment to be in. Again, I was young. I was 17 years old, impressionable at the time. But there, this buzz that was in the room, this excitement, it was very attractive and made me want to see what it was like. Very good. Um, so, you had a, so you went to West Point, and you didn't go into serve, the military service right away. Uh, you went to Stanford to get your MBA after graduating from West Point. Why did you decide to do that? <clears throat> Well, first of all, remember, I went to Stanford as a second lieutenant. So I took the oath along with everybody else, graduated, except my first duty assignment was the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, where others, their first duty assignment might have been Fort Sill, um, Fort Campbell, or Fort Benning for Airborne and Ranger School. My first assignment uh, from the military as a second lieutenant was to go to Stanford, which meant I would graduate from Stanford as a first lieutenant, having never been in the military, technically. Mm. Uh, but the reason I chose it is that the Army had made a policy change the year before when, due to Air Force's offer to the top 5% academically at the Air Force Academy and any of the other top 5% from the other academies who chose to go Air Force, they would give them the chance, because of their academic achievement, to go to the graduate school of their choice at the time of their choice in the subject of their choice. All they had to do was get in, and the rest was paid for. So I started thinking this is probably not a bad idea. I owed the Army four years for West Point. Then I would owe them four years for going to Stanford. But the two years at Stanford counted for my first two years due West Point, and then the next two years counted for my first two for Stanford and my last two for West Point, which <laughs> meant that I got six years of college education for four years of obligation. But the, the reason for picking it was that I went through my academic experience and basically said, you know, the one thing I know nothing about is business, and that perhaps it would be wise to get that under my belt as well. So I went about it. I applied to Stanford and Harvard and got into both and picked Stanford. And I picked Stanford in March. I'll never forget it. I, it was March 31st, I believe it was, and it was 30 degrees and raining with a foot of wet snow on the ground, which is very typical in West Point. So I called Harvard and I said, what's the weather like? And the lady said, what? 
I said, what's the weather? She said, I thought you were calling about telling her you're going to matriculate or not. I said, yes, I am. But at first, I want to know what the weather's like. And uh, she said, well, it's probably the same as yours. It's 30 degrees, raining, and we've got about six to eight inches of wet snow on the ground. I said, can I call you back in a half hour? She said, sure. So I called Stanford, and I said, what's the weather like? <laughs> and the registrar of the business school said, 70 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. I've been that way for six months. <laughs> I said, can you put down Paul W. Buca will be attending Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I went, I, mean, I was a young, I mean, my gosh, I just graduated from college essentially and, and went to the Stanford business school as a second Lieutenant graduated first Lieutenant while at Stanford where everybody goes, gets a job in the summer, you know, for daddy, or they go backpacking in Kathmandu or something like that, or work for the dad's bank or go out and get a legitimate job to try to help defer the cost. I decided that since my profession uh, at the moment was being in the United States Army, that I should go to Airborne and Ranger School. So in the 91 days of holiday break we had for the summer, I fit in 90 days of training at Fort Benning uh, in first the Airborne School and then the Ranger School. Wow. Uh, Which yeah. was, by the way, unique for a Stanford student. Oh, I, I, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> All right, so um, you... you did you did you graduate from Stanford before you got shipped off to Vietnam? Oh yeah, I graduated from Stanford in the summer of '67. Drove to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Excuse me. Uh, uh, yeah, drove to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, where I was a new arrival. I showed up with low quarter shoes, even though I was an airborne ranger. I didn't have jump boots. I didn't have starch fatigues like everybody else. I starched my own with hand starch and I unfortunately put the insignia on the wrong collar and was standing there in low quarter shoes when the brigade commander saw me who I was reporting to. And I said, sir, Lieutenant Buker, he said, I know who the hell you are. I just can't figure out what you are. Get out of here. <laughs> and as I was leaving, he said, go stand by that bush out there. I'll call you when I want you. And this was six in the morning. Six at night, he called me in. <laughs> And he said, uh, ah, I see you have a master's degree. I bet you're pretty proud of that. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you're going to meet a guy in this unit. He's got three master's degrees. and <laughs> He won't be very impressed with you one. I said, sir, I'm very confident he'll be impressed when I get a chance to meet him. He says, you're meeting him, and I'm not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on, he was a man that I just idolized. I just thought he was one, one special person. And, uh and he told me I was going to have the honor of commanding a company in Vietnam and that it was his job to see to it that I was qualified to do so. So where were you deployed uh, exactly in Vietnam? Uh, the first deployment, we, well, we, we went on Operation Eagle Thrust, which is there was one brigade of the 101st already serving in Vietnam at the time, the first brigade. So this was when we brought the colors of the whole division over and the other two brigades and the headquarters companies and the supporting artillery and armor for the whole division. And 3rd Brigade, uh, of which I was a part, uh, went to Phuc Vinh, which was an old French fort in the middle of the rubber plantation area. So it was dense, low canopy jungle and rubber plantations. And I, a lot of people are... They're really familiar with World War II because of, you know, Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers and the Pacific. But I feel like a lot of people aren't familiar with what war was like in Vietnam. 
Um, can you describe what the fighting conditions were like? I mean, was it and how it was different from the previous world wars? Um, there was no front line. The wire around the place you were sleeping that night was the front line. Mm. Whereas as the Allied forces swept across after North Africa and then into Italy and uh, up through France, there was always a line, and you were pushing that line. And as troops fought on the front line and were successful, they would consolidate the objective, meaning they would set up the defenses, and the units behind them would pass through and take up the fight. And eventually, the unit that won the first battle would be in the back, and then it would start all over again. So, for example, the, a person who served for the duration of World War II, the entire time, in a combat role would have, on average, statistics indicate, 81 days of combat. Whereas in Vietnam, for those on the front line, in 81 days, you had 81 days of combat. Not necessarily hot combat, but you were in combat. You were looking for the enemy, and the enemy was looking for you. But the other thing is we had no objective, which to this day, if someone goes back and analyzes that war, including why the public turned so, so quickly against the war and why the anger raged here at home, was that no one could articulate a clear, measurable, finite objective. They could articulate wishes like stop communism, but that's not finite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until the last person in the last book is destroyed, you, you haven't stopped it. It can always resurge. And I mean, it's like today, destroy ISIL. Well, how does one go about doing that? You would have to kill each and every person from here to eternity who embraces the ISIL uh, ideology. But if you took World War II, it was absolute surrender of Germany. So what it was is you had to drive against the German and Japan forces until such time as they were willing to sign an unconditional surrender. Or uh, you could take George Bush the first battle in Kuwait when he said during Desert Storm the objective is to push the the Iraqi force out of the country of Kuwait. That was pretty simple. If you stood on the border, when the last Iraqi jeep went across, it was over. And people criticized him and said, you should have gone to Baghdad. And Bush, who had fought in World War II, said that wasn't the objective. And therefore, we will not do that. And the the war was over in 37 days, whereas Vietnam dragged on and on. The mission I would get as a company commander would be go to this area, X, Y, conduct search and destroy operations until told to move somewhere else. Hmm. And when we would move, the bad guys would come back. (laughs) We'd go to another place and we'd move around. And it was as if we were trying to win a war of attrition. But that wasn't an articulated objective. And if you thought about it, if that's what you wanted, with the population center that Southeast Asia is, uh, and the neighboring countries, albeit Vietnam and China were uh, historical enemies, they had linked for this particular uh, endeavor, 
um, especially after Mao, that there was no end. I mean, you, you, you couldn't destroy them all. You couldn't kill them all. So you had someone had to come up with an objective, and no one did it. Hmm. Was that frustrating for the men on the ground? It was frustrating because when many of them would say, what do we got to do to get home? And the answer would be survive 12 months. Hmm. That's, that's not a very professional or wise way to expend your youth. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem. There's a bitter taste in wars like that. And by the way, all other subsequent wars after George Bush I have been fought the same way. There is no clear, concise, finite, measurable objective. And that's the frustrating part. When do we come home from Afghanistan? When we succeed? What is success? Well, I haven't figured that one out yet. Hmm. And it's, it's part of the debate that has to go on before you commit your youth to war. And the reason you have to do it is once you have, and, it, and by the it's not the military's job, it's the civilian's job. It is not the military's at all. Civilians have to conclude because the military is subordinate to the civilian leaders in this land. Civilian leaders have to decide, why are we considering going into combat? What is it we hope to achieve, specifically, finitely, and in a measurable format, so we can judge progress to or from success? And once they do that, you turn it over to the military and say, how long will this take and what will it cost? Then the civilian leaders can say, Ooh, that's too expensive. Is it worth it? But we haven't gone through that process. We get surprised. I mean, Stiglitz and Vilmas uh, uh, have written a document now that this was the $7 trillion war. $7 trillion. And if someone said, what would you achieve by it? Well, we would have gotten rid of Saddam Hussein, but the country of Iraq would be in a very unstable position. Afghanistan would be on the verge of reverting back to uh, Taliban control, at least in major areas of the country. And someone said for 5,000 lives and $7 trillion? I don't think so. Yeah. And that's, that's the sad part. Now, the beauty is contemporary society, our contemporary communities, do not confuse the warrior with the war. Mm. The frustration people have with these wars has not yet been focused and directed at are burdened upon the men and women who are set to fight the war. And that's good. Um, what did you learn about, I guess, men and like how men relate to each other from serving in the war? Cause I've, I've read, you know, just accounts. Uh, there's a journalist, Sebastian Younger, who wrote the book war, right. Uh, wrote just about the camaraderie that he's never seen anywhere else. Did you see that as well, uh, with the men you served with? I don't use a camaraderie. I say that is the most intense love that exists on the planet. And the reason for it is you have to be willing to give up your life for that person. And you know it. I mean, it's not like that's an, an anomaly. That's part of the course of events in war. And for men and women to be willing to do that for each other transcends anything that might be described by the word camaraderie. But I don't think it, it transcends the word love. And my men were, came from all over the place. They were, they were considered the clerks and the jerks. <laughs> because the jerks, because vast majority had stockade time, 
and clerks because a very few had extremely high degrees and they were draftees who had might have a degree in master's degree in English or in Elizabethan literature or something like that. And they were the speechwriters for many of the generals. And as we mobilized with Vietnam at the peak during this period, which is when we went full score, oh, way over the 500,000 troop level, no one needed a speechwriter. So they got sent to me. And no one wanted the stockade people, so they were sent to me. So my particular group were considered the losers of all losers. And me, as a company commander who had never been Vietnam, the only one in the whole 101st who had not yet been there, I too was a loser. So we were sort of meant for each other. Difference is the men didn't like that. <laughs> they said if the stockade guy said, look, if I can go back to the stockade and not have to go to Vietnam with this guy, send me. I'll go. I'll gladly go. I don't want to send me with a person who's been there three or four times. You got me. Well, we trained together, worked together, stuck together. And out of that came almost this mystical uh, bond among us. And it got to the point where everybody else had lost a lot of people because when we came over, the 101st was immediately subjected to combat. And because of who my men were, no one wanted us around. So we, we were sent out on all these tough missions. But we had not lost anybody. It got to the point where someone said, we'll send you trucks. We'd say, no, thank you. We'll walk. We'll send you helicopters from the uh, 82nd. We'd say, no, thank you. If it's not our helicopters, we're going to walk. And I couldn't even get people to go on R&R for a while. And so it's a mystical love that comes about from the realization that in order to be part of this group, you have to be prepared to die for the others. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? when I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. That's powerful. Um, so let's talk about the events that eventually led up to your Medal of Honor um, citation. What happened that, uh, that I guess, that fateful mean, day? Mean that, uh, well, there was three days. Okay. It's actually more than that. We were, we were, God knows, we were somewhere near Cambodia. We had been, um, uh, during Tet, we were brought into ensure that Comus McVie, the commanding general of the United States forces in Vietnam, Westmoreland, particularly in his headquarters, which came under attack during the Tet Offensive. Uh, first unit was there was uh, Wolfhound's nickname, and they went through their basic load of ammunition in like the first three days. So I got a call. Westmoreland knew me from West Point. His wife was like the, my surrogate mother. My, since my parents weren't showing up, if I was if I made all American, or if I got a, a distinguished cadet award for my academics, she would stand there with me, and she would come to all the swimming meets. She was a fan of the swimming team, and then because I was in charge of the quote hop committee, which meant social events for my class, 
I had to introduce the superintendent at every receiving line to the guests. So I got to know the general well. My unit was a company within the 187th Airborne Regiment, which he commanded in Korea, the one which jumped into Incheon. Plus, he had been the commanding general of the 101st. So if you put it all together, I knew him, he knew me, this was his unit, both of his units, and he said, send in Delta Company, 3rd of the 187th, to to protect us. (laughs) So... First thing I did is I got made sure I knew what my orders were, and they were to make sure that this place is invulnerable, uh, and make sure it looks like it's just bristling with combat forces ready to do harm. <laughs> so I tore down the pastel air raid shelters, and since the North Vietnamese didn't have any airplanes, I don't know why we had air raid shelters, and I made them to pew bunkers which sent the entire headquarters la-la land on me. They just said, oh, my God, everybody will think we're in a war zone. <laughs> I said, well, we are, I think. And we were there for three weeks. We didn't fire around. No one got hurt, and <laughs> we took care of everybody. And it was just my guys, they were very tough, disciplined people. And they, they, had, they knew the difference between a threat and a perceived threat. And in, this, in that particular role, it was very important that you know, we not fire our weapons excessively uh, because you never know when you might really need all the ammunition should there be a major uh, confrontation. And after we did that job for three weeks, we were sent back out to the boonies, and I got a call on the radio saying, you're going to be picked up, got a new mission, you're going to, basically what they told us, your company is going to be the lead element in the counter-tet offensive, trying to maintain contact with and engage in combat, those forces withdrawing from Saigon, trying to head for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And so that's what the operation was. They inserted us into a landing zone where there was no artillery support because we were beyond that. We were dependent totally on air power. And two or three hours after we landed, like the proverbial dog, we caught them. Uh, the dog catches the bus. We caught the NVAVC battalion with an S and we stayed engaged with them for two to three days. And then, and we moved at night. We never, the philosophy at the time was to form these night defensive perimeters. And I just did not see the logic of that. That meant make all this noise, bringing in all this equipment. So the NVA and VC know where you are, <laughs> exactly where you are. And then your job is to, I guess, coax them to attack you and be believing in your defensive structure, you will kill a lot of them. Well, that didn't make a heck of a lot of sense to me because you don't pick a fight with someone huge compared to yourself. (laughs) You might be forced to fight them, but you don't pick that fight. So what we did is we followed more of a ranger philosophy and we moved at night, same as they did. And we had chance meetings. So instead of sitting in the middle of a field with barbed wire around us, we would be in the middle of the jungle moving just as quietly as they. And periodically we would engage them. And that was our way of staying in touch with them because we knew they moved at night, we would move with them. And the 18th, 19th, so the last day of the period, uh, I had everybody refueled and resupplied that new ammunition. We pressed off into the jungle, and one of my men said, can I request permission to fire, uh, recon by fire? And I said, why? He said, I've seen water carriers 
I've seen women. I don't want to get involved in a direct combat until I know what's here. And he says, they don't see us as a large force. We weren't very large. We were 89, but the group that was out front of us was three people. And he fired maybe four rounds and the entire mountain unloaded on us. And at that point, I said, oops, <laughs> we caught the bus. <laughs> and that was that ended up being the challenge is how could we, they were estimated, we, no one knows because they would withdraw before daylight. But because of circumstances, I had um, five or six of the men had been cut off and were actually behind the NBA VC lines and alive and survived. And so they were able to be debriefed and told everybody, what it looked like from the enemy side. And as it turned out, from the people that were killed on the battlefield that we pulled the insignia of and things like that, if this was a North Vietnamese regular unit and a VC unit. Uh, the VC unit was the Dong Nai Battalion, which was one of the most respected of their regular fighting units, uh, Viet Cong VC. And they had the same kind of a unit, which was more of a special ops unit, and probably a sapper unit that was coming out of Saigon with the people to bring in explosives. Uh, and we stumbled on them where they were trying to take a break. And I guess they didn't like it because <laughs> they were mad. So, But at the end of the day, um, these guys who were the losers, in everybody's opinion, ended up being one of the most highly decorated most some many people have told me the most highly decorated but i believe there's always a chance where we might not have counted it correctly one of the most highly decorated unit in the entire history of the vietnam war wow um when did uh, oh, tremendous ahead. lesson in that right for all of us to not prejudge people oh yeah but give them give them a chance to prove what they are as opposed to presuming you know yeah when did you find out that you would receive the medal of honor well, I didn't know anything about it. I, I, uh, I, I heard my men put me in for the Distinguished Service Cross, and uh, I had that was awarded to me at uh, Fort Knox while I was going to school after I came back from Vietnam. And then I got a call. I mean, I'd heard people say, "Oh my God, that should be the Medal of Honor." Some of my men wrote me notes from hospitals saying, "I hope they give you the Medal of Honor for this this kind of stuff." All of which was in my opinion, um, enthusiastic response once people realized they were still alive. Um, and I was bothered by even the Distinguished Service Cross because I lost 10 men. And there's something that's a disconnect between giving someone a medal, which will be honored and revered by others, who on their list of accomplishments uh, that they lost 10 men. Mm. Now people say, oh my God, you could have lost everybody. Fine, but I lost 10. And I had an understanding with my men. I asked them, look, I'm new at this, but I'm not stupid. I've been trained to do this the right way. If you trust me and do as I say and request of you, I will get you home. And 10 guys didn't make it. Hmm. So, well, anyway, I, one day uh, I was told, I couldn't understand this, that someone in the personnel office of the military told me, you know, the chances of you going to Vietnam again in the near future are slim. 
I couldn't figure that out. I said, why? I'm, I'm an infantry officer. And they said, no, uh, do you have any job you might like to do? We could normally send you to business school or graduate school. You've already done that. We could send you to be a staff officer. You've already done that, except you did it in combat. Got any other ideas? I said, well, I could go teach at West Point. And they said, that'd be great. And I couldn't, I never understood that. Then when I was at West Point, um, in May, actually it was, yeah, early May in 1970, the uh, sergeant called me and said, actually wasn't, the first call was from uh, uh, Colonel Hamlin, who was my uh, uh, director at West Point. He was in charge of me. He was now a general, he was in, inspector general of the Army. And uh, he called me to tell me about that I'd be receiving a phone call because they had upgraded the distinguished service cost of the Medal of Honor. When the sergeant called and told me that, I said, you know, no thank you. He said, what? <laughs> I said, no thanks. I don't deserve it. And he said, can I talk to you candidly and off the record without military protocol? I said, yeah. And he cussed me out one side and down the other. <laughs> he said, who the hell do you think you are? This isn't for you to decide. This you're not, We didn't win this medal. You've been asked to wear it. You wear it for your men. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I said, what time do you have to be there, sir? <laughs> but so going into that idea, I mean, you, you had, there was some hesitancy for you to take on that medal. And I, I've, I imagine, um, I mean, there's just this supreme, heavy, I guess, I don't know, I don't know, weight's the right word, but like sense of obligation, duty, responsibility that comes when someone you know, earns our nation's highest honor for the military. And, I, and I've read accounts of soldiers who were also similarly you know, honored with the Medal of Honor, and they didn't handle, I guess, the, the spotlight or that simple, that, that, the, the heaviness of it very well. I mean, what do you think separates? I mean, what, what happens I mean, between a man who, you know, or a soldier who can take on the mantle of the Medal of Honor and those who who can do it. And what, 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 what goes on there? Well, I, I don't think it is the fault of the recipient. They didn't ask for it. Yeah. It's how we treat them. And the best way it is, is if I brought all the Medal of Honor recipients into one room, you looked at them and I didn't tell you who they were. You would say they look like anybody else. And the reason you'd say that is they are just like anybody else. They're not special. There's nothing innately different about them except this potential that we realize every single person we meet has to challenge destiny. That potential was called upon by each of these men because they found this mysterious confluence of time and circumstances that gives rise to being able to perceive, to see, to recognize your fate, destiny, as it will be absent any change. And when you see it, you refuse to accept it. And you say, not today. And you do something. God knows what you do. I mean, you dive on a hand grenade. That's one. I mean, men that do that, I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, you pick up a weapon and you go kill a lot of people. 
you pick up a wounded soldier and you throw him on your back and you save him and rescue him. You're a pilot. You decide to crash land your airplane to try to take care of some prisoners of war that you see are escaping so that you can help them. Uh, or a helicopter pilot goes where everybody tells him not to go to try to pick up the wounded. And they know, they say, look, I, yeah, I can go back, but fate, destiny, as I see it, is those kids are going to die. They're going to die, and I'm going to live with that. The rest of my life, no way is that going to be my fate. I'm going to go get them. Or a young lady gets on a bus, like she did every other day, in Montgomery, Alabama, and walks halfway down, sees the sign, colored's in back, and she says, not today and sits down on that bus seat in the middle of the bus and refuses to move. Yet she's seen people have dogs sicked on her, batons used to beat them, fire hoses to blast them, and in fact, people being shot. And yet she sat down and nobody gave her a medal. But Rosa Parks changed Montgomery, she changed the United States, she changed the world. She saw her destiny in her mind. If I go back there, I will forever be in the back of a bus. So I think that's what occurs. Mm -hmm. And each of us has that potential. Every single person you meet. And if we would only treat each other as that potential deserves to be treated, just think how more civilized we would be to one another. Whereas now you slap the little ribbon around your neck with the ribbon of blue and everybody stands up and cheers. And the mistake people make is to say that we who wear that ribbon say we deserve the cheering. We don't. But the men and women with whom we served and those who were not recognized deserve it. And therefore, we accept your applause. We expect, expect, uh, accept your celebration, not for us, but for the men and women with whom we served. Now, what makes it difficult is when people don't accept that. People who don't know when to say, you're a hero, come do this. And, that, and if you're 21 years old and everywhere you go, everybody's opening the door and doing all this stuff for you and you won't let you have to hang around with the generals. You can't go be the sergeant that hangs around with the sergeants. That makes it very, very difficult. And I imagine there's also, I mean, some exploitation going on. I'm sure people will see this, you know, a young man has the Medal of Honor. They're like, hmm, you know, maybe I could use this guy for something, right, for my own gain. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And, uh, and, the, and that's not only in the military, that's in the civilian life. Yeah. And that's, that's in, I mean, like the kid that wins, becomes the world chess champion. Yeah. All of a sudden, people who you know have never picked up a chess piece in their entire life become aficionados of chess and have this guy hanging around with them. <clears throat> so, I mean, it, there's always that. I mean, we, we in our society uh, have an, en enormous, um, an enormous fascination um, and almost uh, an awe when it comes to celebrity. And I think that's one of our failings and the Medal of Honor recipients, many people think, benefit from it. But I think their lives would be easier were the celebrity, not to single them out. Because in many celebrities, you get singled out until while you're in vogue and then you're gone. Yeah. That's also tough for people. Uh, 
especially young people that come up from the ranks and get it when they're private first class and the rest of their life, this is something that's going to be there. There, there comes a time when the spotlight's turned, and that's a very difficult time for many people. Um, you, were, I saw in your bio that you were at one time the the president of the Medal of Honor Society. Yes. Um, I mean, is there a sort of a fraternity? I mean, is this the right word for of people who receive the Medal of Honor? Yep, there's a society. There is, and for which it, there is only one criteria. You must be a recipient of the Medal of Honor, period. Mm-hmm. And there's no grounds for expulsion. So you can be the meanest, baddest crook in the world. <laughs> and if you have the medal, you're a member of the society. What do you all do? Do you have like you know yearly meetings? or? We get together. We do that. Now we try to use the platforms we've been given and the celebrity we are assigned to serve others. That's fantastic. Um, so what, looking back on your service in the military, uh, and particularly your service in Vietnam, were, what lessons did you take from that, that helped you in the rest of your life? Um, perhaps, perhaps the most one, the unlimited potential that each person has. I mean, when you, you, you see these people brought from disparate parts of the country and in Vietnam they were arriving as single people. They weren't arriving as units and, and leaving as units. You left as a survivor. <laughs> it was there weren't the ten month survivors. No, you either survived twelve months or you're already gone home. So they came as individuals and they returned as individuals. And as a result you have to know them and recognize them as individuals and what you come to the conclusion is each and every one of them has this enormous potential to do extraordinary things <clears throat> okay this is the the last question um I, I, next year i i believe is the 40th anniversary for the end of the vietnam war is that correct well we we're what we call it i'm on the yeah. commission it's the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the war okay <laughs> 50th anniversary and the 40 for the beginning 50th of the or 50th for, for the beginning of the war because we're not really sure when it ended yeah, we're, we're not, not sure, sure when it started <laughs> okay i mean it's been a while so we have the you know we have the uh, distance of time what i guess what do you hope listeners know and understand about the war in vietnam and the men who fought in it that they might not know and understand about right now well the most most important thing is that uh, these were warriors uh, selected by the country, not by themselves, to go to a far-off land whose location most of them couldn't find on a map, the language they did not speak, and the culture they did not understand, but they went. And that incurs an IOU from society. And therefore, when PTS sets in, some of it's immediate, but in most cases, like mine, it took 40-some-odd years to set in, um, we owe them. No one owes me, but we owe them. And we owe them the finest medical care that can, this country can provide. We owe them a job. When the economy pulls the rug out from underneath them and the manufacturing jobs which they've had and made a career out of disappear, we owe them because they did something for us and they will continue to bear the burden of that service in war the rest of their lives, and therefore we have an obligation that goes along simultaneously. 
with that congruent to their life, and that is to see that they can have a job. And if we have to, we have to retrain them. <clears throat> and if you don't agree with that, don't send them. They didn't ask to go. This wasn't their idea. Someone came up with this concept of, of the dominoes falling. <laughs> that was justified. And most of them would say, what the hell is a domino? <laughs> they said, well, a little black box. Why am I in Vietnam for the dominoes? Well, Vietnam's a domino. And, and, and as I would explain it to my men, they said, ah, some general came up with that. <laughs> and interesting enough, and that wasn't the general because the general was just as disparaging. It was a politician <laughs> who came up with that. Right? So what you learn is that there's this tremendous obligation the country has to those who wear the uniform or have worn the uniform and their families. And you can't escape that obligation. Period. You cannot. And it's expensive. And unfortunately, should have thought that before you sent them. The other thing is, is this thing I repeated earlier, the, that each one of these kids who went over there performed in such an extraordinary way. They didn't lose a battle, not a battle in the war. The problem is there were more, more coming in than they could kill. And that was the only course of action that the political geniuses of the time thought of. Kill everybody. That's how we'll know. Just going to kill the VC. That's why they started counting body counts. But the people taking the body counts didn't realize that these soldiers also had a sense of humor and realized how silly it is to ask us how many people you killed. What difference did it make? You didn't have a finite supply coming, and therefore, if you killed 10% of it, they only had 90. No, there was an infinite supply, so you didn't do anything, you just didn't accomplish anything. Well, these soldiers adopted that somewhat cynical attitude, and you would hear them, I'd hear my radio telephone operator after a battle, he'd say, we had 15 VC killed, four estimated to be wounded. No one said, oh, how do you know? <laughs> they would just say it, and then they would say, we, you know, 1,000 pounds of rice, this and that, and four Diet Coke cans. And it was, yes, sir, a Diet Coke cans. You'd hear him saying, and I would say, what do you mean Diet Coke cans? And when he got off, he said, sir, there's some guy counting up the number of Diet Coke cans here in Vietnam. I know there is. There's got to be. <laughs> so, and you, know, you, come, you come to love these people because they in the middle of, a, of an experience which could take their life any second, they got this somewhat cynical sense of humor. Well, Paul Buca, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a, just an enjoyable conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Our guest today was Paul Buca. He is a Vietnam War veteran as well as a recipient of the Medal of Honor. And if you're looking for more information about the Medal of Honor, the history behind it, definitely recommend checking out a new book called The Medal of Honor, A History of Service Above and Beyond. You'll learn how the Medal of Honor came about, why we have it. And you'll also learn about some of the stories of the men and women who have received our nation's highest honor for our armed services. So check it out. You can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the Art of Manliness podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you go on to iTunes or Stitcher, whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast and give us a rating. I'd really appreciate it. And also, FYI, 
We now have transcripts of all of our podcast in text form on the site. So you can go to artofmanliness.com slash category slash podcast. Look through the archives of our podcast and you'll also find text transcriptions. So if you want to read through and not just listen through the podcast, you can do that. So until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.